Artificial intelligence, the emergence of technology which allows machines to perform tasks that usually require human intelligence. For some, it could change the workplace landscape as computers and machines complete those tasks. AI algorithms use real-time data to make decisions compared to those that are already programmed to do a task. Thus, you get the appearance of thinking to complete the job. Now, imagine bringing artificial intelligence into the political room realm. What could go wrong? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. Many of us were tweaked to the notion of artificial intelligence with the investigation into Cambridge Analytica and its impact on the 2016 U.S. election. While artificial intelligence will soon give us self-driving vehicles, there is a growing skepticism of applying it in the political realm or public policymaking. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the advancements in the technology and how it may be applied in the political world. Politicians consistently rank near the bottom of the list when it comes to being respected and trustworthy. What if AI could improve on that? Many wonder if it would be good for democracy. We want to hear from you about this. For unpublished.vote question asks, how do you feel about AI being used in Canadian politics? I'm okay with it. I don't like it or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Starting us off is Bruce Shiner. He's a fellow and lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School. And Bruce, considering AI's impact on the 2016 U.S. election, should people be concerned about branching it into the political sphere, or was it already there? So I would worry about uh, artificial intelligence and politics. So two ways. You mentioned Cambridge Analytica, and that is using AI techniques to understand us, to figure out how to motivate us, how to persuade us, and then to target advertisements, right? personalized advertisements to us, to our psyche, maybe based on time of day or who we are on our profile. And that's something to think about. And of course, for concern, not just politics, but in normal advertising. Mm -hmm. The thing I think is more interesting and dangerous are artificial people. Already, we are seeing AIs write realistic newspaper articles, op-ed pieces, make uh, comments for, uh, for rulemaking or commenting in social media or in articles. And there's the potential for these artificial personas to dominate political debates. And so you sort of get your idea of what politics is based on what you're hearing around you. And if most of those speakers are AIs, you're going to get a very skewed view of politics. When you when you talk about artificial people, are, are we talking about the bots that were so prevalent during that 2016 election, or, or has there been an advance in the last five years? You know, in 2016, the bots were just repeating things. And, and in U.S., Saudi Arabia, China, a lot of countries would use bots to, to repeat messages. Uh, the real advancements are making them feel human. So imagine a bot that is in uh, an affinity group of yours, you know, model railroading, knitting, cooking, right. and it's just making comments and being part of the group and occasionally saying something political. And as far as you're concerned, it's a real person, but it is a bot and it has an agenda, but the agenda only pops up here and there once in a while. But this is AI. These are computers. Multiply that by a million, by 10 million. And suddenly you have all of these artificial people who feel like real people who are speaking based on a paid agenda. And that is the worry 
that when you see on a, a letters column in a newspaper that AIs have wrote those letters, that when you see comments to a newspaper article right, from the you know, Toronto Sun, that it, those are all written by AIs who are personalizing it, who are doing it automatically. Right? In the United States, we have something called uh, uh, notice and comment rulemaking. So an agency posts a, posts a proposed rule, and then we citizens can comment on it. And we send letters. And that, in the past couple of years, has been taken over by automated systems. Mostly kind of dumb, but those will be smarter. So an agency might get 10,000 comments to a rule, all individual, all personal, all unique, all from fake people. When we talk about artificial people and, and in the sense that you're talking about writing letters, writing op-eds, is there a way to determine the difference between an actual person with the thought putting it down on paper and uh, a, 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 obviously an artificial person? No, it's easy. You watch them doing it. Right? The problem is we're using the yeah. internet where it's yeah. being sent over a computer. So you get a paragraph in the mail. There's no way for you to tell who wrote that, whether that was written by a human or an artificial intelligence. Now, and, and this is just text. When you get to things like audio and video, now we think about the deep fake technologies. Mm-hmm. And right, so I can make a fake YouTube channel with a fake person saying fake things. And it's not that that alone is bad, because right? real people say pretty awful things all the time. Yeah. It's that you can scale it in a way you can't with actual humans. What do you mean right? by Those, scaling? You have it a thousand, a million. Okay. I talked about those persona bots that might be just being in your affinity group, right? If I was a propagandist, I couldn't scale that. I could do that 10, 50, 100 times, but it takes work. But if I can automate it, I can do that in every single affinity group on Facebook, wow. right? Every single you know, Twitter hashtag, I can put it everywhere. And you're not going to tell the real people from the fake people. And that's the problem that now conversation is perturbed by who has access to the technology, who has the money. Bruce Shiner is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe, fellow and lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School, as we talk about artificial intelligence. And considering artificial intelligence is man-made, and we are human, thus make mistakes, can that have an impact on the people who are utilizing artificial intelligence? Uh, We do worry about AIs making mistakes. We worry about them being hacked. We worry about them you know, hacking themselves, uh, doing things that we didn't expect, uh, goal hacking, reward hacking. And these are all worries, but that's kind of esoteric. I'm actually talking about legitimate ways of using AIs normally. I mean, nobody's doing anything wrong here. This is how the systems were designed. But the problem is our human systems aren't designed for computer scale. So the computers can run rings around us because we're human. I mean, just like we worry about AIs targeting personal ads for us and being Hmm. more persuasive than other humans would be and us falling for it. I mean, some of this I think is a moral panic, but I think there's real things to worry about here. What other real things are you concerned about? So I am worried about uh, AIs dominating conversations. I'm worried about uh, persuasion happening without our knowledge and consent because they're just better at it. And I'm worried about AIs doing tasks that are normally reserved for humans and doing them in a way that we humans 
don't like, but we don't realize they're doing it. Now, I mean, so an easy example would be, let's say you have an AI that uh, makes parole decisions, mm-hmm. bail decisions. This is actually relatively common in the United States. I actually don't know about Canada. Uh, now, so if the AI, you know, would lock all men up and let all women free, right? We would notice that. We would say, hey, wait a second. Something's wrong here. Right? The AI is obviously biased. But if the AI just locked up 10% more men and let go 10% more women, we might never notice it. Right? If the change is subtle and we don't have knowledge of the inner workings of the system, we wouldn't know that the bias exists. Do you feel artificial intelligence can make politics and politicians more accountable for their decisions and, and policy choices? So I think it can. I mean, AI is a technology that has all sorts of uses, and we we're talking about bad and worries, but the potential good uses, I, I think, are enormous. And I do think there is a potential for AIs to uh, pro- uh, do audits, to provide for transparency, to look at legislation and figure out any, uh, any loopholes we might not uh, have seen. I mean, there are ways to harness the power of, of AI technologies for good. There are lots of them. And that's why we're going to see these technologies, right? Because this automating, right? this autonomy, this physical agency is important. I mean, just like we all have a thermostat, which is kind of a, a, really, a really, really dumb AI. Right? It looks at the temperature and turns your heater on and off, right? Super stupid. Doesn't even count as AI. You ramp that up to... You know, an environmental control system of your home that anticipates your needs and knows what you want, right? That sounds pretty good. You get increased energy efficiency, increased comfort, and it all happens kind of magic because it's a computer doing it. So lots of of Mm. positive things. Yeah, I understand. Bruce, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Bruce Schneier is a fellow and lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School. For many political observers, AI is evident in the perimeter of politics, the impact of Facebook and bots on political discussion. Daryl West is vice president and director of government st- governance studies and a senior fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institute. And, and Daryl, policymaking in the age of AI. That's your, your book with John Allen. How do you see AI impacting policymaking? It has tremendous implications really across the board because AI is being deployed in finance, in retail, in manufacturing, in national defense, in healthcare. Uh, virtually every sector is being impacted on it. For the last 30 years, we've had a pretty hands-off approach to technology innovation, so not a lot of government oversight or government regulation, uh, but that model is really starting to change. There's a lot of concerns about AI in terms of uh, fairness, uh, bias, uh, impact on human safety, Uh, privacy uh, considerations. So I think going forward, there's going to be much more government oversight in terms of what goes on. And and do you think, you know, there there is uh, either skepticism or maybe a little bit of fear of of AI. And do you think that might be part of the the issue that there has been so little government oversight on this? We basically have had a libertarian stance where we've delegated all the major technology decisions to tech companies. Uh, but now we all understand the enormous power that those companies have, uh, that they're motivated by making money uh, and not necessarily incorporating all the human values that the rest of us may have. So I think that's what's really going to drive uh, the a big increase in uh, government oversight. It's like we want to make sure the innovation respects human values, it protects privacy, that it's safe, does not have 
negative consequences in terms of the way that we make uh, decisions in the finance area, for example, AI is being used for loan applications and mortgage applications. And we just want to make sure that those applications uh, make lending decisions in a fair manner. You know, uh, re referring back to your, to your book, which, which near-term policy decisions could determine whether technology leads to utopia or, or dystopia? One of the big ones that's being debated right now in the United States is just the antitrust and market competition aspects, because all of these big uh, platforms, they're not necessarily monopoly players, but they certainly are very dominant in the marketplace and have the disproportionate share of the particular activity. And so uh, here uh, we have government enforcement actions against both Google and Facebook. Uh, there are other companies that may become subject to that as well. So we're trying to figure out ways to introduce more competition into the marketplace. And also, I mean, the whole virtue of technology has uh, innovation has been those small firms that started in a garage and somebody's uh, basement and then uh, kind of uh, took off from there. We want to make sure that we still retain that type of startup ecosystem in which the small guy uh, has a fair chance of competing against these large platforms. Is there, is there a lot of competition in, in, in AI? I didn't realize that. There's competition in AI in terms of developing the solutions, but okay. a lot of the AI solutions are being run either off of mobile networks or large internet platforms. And there, there's not nearly as much competition because there are a handful of dominant players uh, that really uh, control a lot of what uh, takes place there. And so what we're trying to encourage companies to do is to incorporate ethics in their product design and their product deployment. And some companies are starting to do that. They're developing internal review boards that review the ethical and societal ramifications of AI before it actually gets deployed. And we start to see the problems. On the government side, we're encouraging agencies to think about how they use AI and to become more proactive, uh, to kind of think about AI impact statements, how the AI is going to affect the economy, societal, is it promoting uh, fairness in human safety, or is it introducing new types of biases into decision making? How can governments ensure artificial intelligence is trustworthy, or is it possible at all? It is possible. Uh, these are software uh, packages that are designed by human beings. Uh, so we just need to make sure that these innovators take the ethical aspects of AI very seriously. I mean, a lot of them are technocrats that aren't trained in kind of thinking about ethics, uh, aren't uh, trained to think about looking at the societal ramifications of these types of uh, technologies. What they like to do is basically develop the new AI solution, put it out in the world, and then when problems start to develop, then they address them. That's too late. You know, mm -hmm. we need to become much more proactive in the process. We don't want to just run large-scale experiments and then figure out what the problems are after it is too late. We need to uh, uh, kind of th think about those issues much earlier in the design and deployment process. Now, government oversight of ethical practices, but governments change. And could that not overthrow the oversight or, or change the oversight? Increasingly, at least in the United States, we're starting to see the two parties come together with Mm -hmm. joint concerns about technology innovation. I mean, Republicans and Democrats don't always have the same worries about technology, but there's been a dramatic increase in worry on both sides of the aisle. So I think this is a situation where, unlike a lot of 
other areas where there's a lot of polarization and hyperpartisanship. On technology, there are certain worries uh, that both parties share about privacy, uh, about the impact on human safety, about uh, questions of, of bias and of fairness. So I think that there's likely to be less flip-flopping you know, from Republicans to Democrats on technology policy than what we might see in other types of policy areas. Now, uh, audits to oversee al algorithm bias. I, I thought there was no bias in data. How do you get bias in data? Uh, there's huge bias in data. Mm -hmm. uh, most historical uh, databases either are incomplete or unrepresentative, either of which can introduce uh, biases into the decision making because the algorithms really are no better than the data. And so if the data are biased in some ways or just unrepresentative, then the algorithm is going to be biased. And so this becomes uh, an issue in the financial area in terms of loan mm -hmm. applications. AI is starting to be used in the criminal justice system, and we know there are well-known racial disparities there. Uh, facial recognition is much better at recognizing the faces of Caucasians rather than minorities. So there's some known problems uh, that we already have identified, and we need to figure out how to deal with those and how to mitigate those kinds of risks. Daryl, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Daryl West is Vice President and Director of Governance Studies and Senior Fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings Institute. AI gets the blame when it comes to misinformation. Emma Bryant's a visiting research associate in human rights at Bard College. Her specialty is propaganda and disinformation. And she joins us now. And Emma, is propaganda and disinformation on the rise? And is it due to AI? Well, that's a really interesting question. See. Um... I think the problem is that uh, there certainly is a hell of a lot of disinformation around. It's very difficult to see uh, and measure just how much it's rising because uh, we are really dependent on what we know. And one thing that people who make disinformation um, uh, prioritize is obviously not getting caught <laughs> uh, and hiding often uh, the sources of, of the disinformation. So. Um, you know, one of the stories that's been in the press in Wired, a, a piece I wrote this week has been mm -hmm. about like, how do you measure this? It's really difficult because, um, you know, if you rely on the public reporting of disinformation, that's increased too. So we're finding it more because we're actually reporting it on it more. Now, probably it, it also has increased greatly because there's certainly a heck of a lot of money driving a really big industry. I mean, I have a really big long spreadsheet full of companies that are profiting out of making uh, campaigns that are misleading people in politics and, and uh, working for governments as well. There's millions of dollars that go into this uh, practice, possibly billions. But the problem is that you've got dark money flows. Uh, and there's a lot of things that still haven't been, you know, seen. Um, you see all these accounts being taken down by Facebook now, so we know the scale of, of some of the um, of what's going on. But there's this hidden industry that's also there that we probably don't know a lot of um, uh, what, what's out there, what's being produced. Um, so getting a real gauge on how much that is, well, that work really still needs to be done. All right. Now, uh, you, you have found it's underreported in some places. I wonder if, if you know, disinformation propaganda is underreported due to the government or the political environment as opposed to the technology. Well, that's certainly 
the case a lot of the time, you know. So, um, you know, if in places where the media is, you know, highly controlled or where, you know, journalists may be, you know, very bravely um, reporting, but, you know, face enormous pressures on getting things out, uh, maybe where there's less funding for the local academics who, who researchers who might be wanting to do the work of exposing disinformation campaigns, and it might be very dangerous. They might be getting spied on and, and um, you know, uh, uh, under mass surveillance by their governments. So there are a lot of restrictions. Um, and plus, you know, when it comes to Western media, which might be well-funded and, and want to report on the world, there will be priority places that they cover more than others. So that means that there's this um, imbalance and inequality in the reporting. And there certainly will be campaigns in parts of the world that we don't really know about. We also focus mostly on on our enemies and what they're doing and you know they're doing some pretty uh, abhorrent things mm. when it comes to disinformation including to us so that's reasonable to some degree we, we should be aware of those campaigns but it does mean that i think we, we struggle to really get a sense of what's going on around the world you brought up the phrase dark money what does that refer to well, this is, um, there are a lot of different ways of um, hiding donors to campaigns. And, you know, that can be, um, it, it differs according to different countries, how, how different the rules are in different places. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say, I'm not that familiar with the Canadian <laughs> context when it comes to that. Um, but uh, certainly in the United States, there is huge scope for uh, anonymous donations to foundations and things like this. And so there are, there are nonprofits and they only have to declare certain, you know, mm -hmm. donations over a certain level. And this makes a, you know, a very easy way to um, funnel money around and to hide it. And, and in addition, you have uh, the ability to set up um, uh, companies that are hidden and that are shell companies in places uh, like Delaware. And that also enables um, the secrecy and a failure of transparency over where money, how much money is, is where. You have offshore, um, I'm sure you're all aware about all the offshore um, uh, accounts that these rich people from all around the world, where they put their money. Um, and you also have, you know, the ability to um, operate in different jurisdictions due to the ability to, for instance, buy citizenship somewhere. So if uh, somebody is facing sanctions in a place like Russia, for instance, it's possible to just buy a passport in some little Caribbean country or something like that. And that gives you access to markets that would be very difficult for you to operate in. So this is all how mass corruption around the world, not just disinformation, but corruption occurs uh, and, is, and, is, um, and, and is hidden away. The, these industries, there are legitimate reasons why people would want to, um, you know, uh, acquire a passport in this kind of fashion. But I'm, I'm going to say that these things can be abused uh, for illegitimate purposes and that it's um, very important to understand that actually this is also part of how these, um, uh, you know, unethical campaigns are getting funded. Computational propaganda. How does it work? <laughs> well, essentially, you are using big data to um, analyze and profile the audiences 
and you might put out a, a post um, uh, that's persuasive and that you think will meet that audience's interests and, and make them engage. And through platforms like Facebook now, um, you have an ability to get immediate reaction of how that post is doing and you can learn. And so the algorithms learn uh, what's successful propaganda and what's not, and they can change and prioritize um, the most persuasive and most um, engaging content. Now that means that things that are highly emotive, that you know your main your main um, your main uh, decision maker might not necessarily be the truthfulness of the post. It might be about engagement. So things that are false but very emotionally stirring might cause people to share them more. And so therefore, um, the algorithmic sort of predictability, um, you know emphasizes that because the, the platforms are also built to make more money and the more shares, uh, the more money that the platforms make as well out of this. So, you know, you want to heighten the amount that things share and that isn't necessarily in the uh, interests of people being most informed by the most uh, relevant and informative posts. Emma Bryant is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. She's visiting a research associate in human rights at Bard College as we talk about artificial intelligence. And Emma, your latest column in Wired talks about an Oxford University study on misinformation, and you found it thin on substance. Yeah. Is that a concern that an organization with a, well, let's face it, a great reputation and a great brand would not have its work checked just because of its reputation? Yes. I mean, I don't, I can't speak for the journalists. I, I no. would say, though, that um, it's very concerning that this um, got the headlines it did um, based on the flaws in the methodology that I've, I've talked about in my article, which basically what they did was look at what's been reported and then make claims about how much you know um, propaganda there is based on how much has been reported when actually we've been we've been trying to find more so if you look for more of something you're going to find more of it and that doesn't mean that that disinformation isn't out there but it does mean that media reporting of something isn't necessarily evidence of of the scale of the phenomenon, the, the accurate scale of the phenomenon. And the danger with, with misleading results being all across the headlines about how things have doubled in the space of two years is, is actually, things have been like this for about probably at least 15 years on this mass production scale of, of disinformation. Um, it's, it's, it's actually uh, reducing the scale of the problem, if anything. These headlines almost should be, uh, you know, greater and talking about a larger problem that has been going on far longer, that um, is far more established and actually is linked to systems of power that we need to need to transform. It's not just about like recent conduct and recently introduced systems 
it's actually something that is much more heavily embedded. Um, and it, it's very misleading that they are producing like charts, which are saying there were six companies that were working, six countries or nine countries, sorry, that were um, hiring these kind of companies and working in, in 20, 2017. When Cambridge Analytica alone had four uh, political campaigns in, in countries around the world in, in 2017. So they're not, they're excluding a lot of different examples. And those are real people's experience there are countries in the world who's who are experiencing horrifying disinformation campaigns and Oxford University refused to look at those because they weren't reported in the mainstream media which doesn't report everything now that's really problematic because you're excluding those people's perspectives and their experiences and you're you know essentially reducing the scale of the problem and biasing your sample how do you see AI fitting into the political landscape? Well, you know, I think more and more, unfortunately, it's is becoming the standard mechanisms of, of um, political communication. And I um, am really concerned that we're not addressing this issue of what is essentially mass surveillance um, persuasion um, as the standard for um, political campaigns. Um, the issue is that, you know, always since the beginning of time, politicians have wanted to look at what the voters, uh, they want to you know, win over mm -hmm. quite legitimately, um, uh, what they think and what will you know, persuade the people to come to my party. Um, and you know, now more and more you can, you can have immediate reaction um, and, and immediately change your, your, you know, uh, your statements, your public statements, what you're saying, your policies according to fluctuating uh, you know, um, feedback that you might be getting from, from all of this like artificial intelligence, the monitoring of opinion. Now you change policy based on that immediate reaction, that could be quite dangerous when you're talking about, you know, changing immigration policy because people suddenly, you know, people have reacted in a, a big way. It might take us away from leadership on really important issues to reactionary policy uh, based on public outrage over something that they haven't understood perhaps, but which mm. creates that immediate like, oh no, we can't have that, we're gonna lose votes. All right, yes. Okay, Emma, I, Emma, I wanna thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be back on the show. <laughs> Emma Bryant is a visiting research associate in human rights at Bard College in New York City. Our unpublished.vote question looks at artificial intelligence. How do you feel about AI being used in Canadian politics? You can vote right now. I'm okay with it. I don't like it or unsure. Log on, let us know. I want to thank our guest today, Bruce Schneier. He's a fellow and lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School, Daryl West, Vice President and Director of Governance Studies and Senior Fellow of the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings Institute, and Emma Bryant, Visiting Research Associate in Human Rights at Bard College. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.